All right. Well, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. We're going to wrap up the first half of Colossians this morning. And Lord willing, uh, resume it in November after our special series um, on the five solas, which we'll be doing in October. And if you haven't heard about that, please read your email um, about that coming up in October. So perhaps most of you, or at least some of you, have heard of C.S. Lewis's work, The Screwtape Letters. It's a great book, and I encourage you to check it out uh, if you haven't before. Screwtape Letters is a very unusual book. Um, it's a book of fictitious letters written by Screwtape, who's a senior devil, to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a junior devil, and he's trying to tell him how to lead Christians astray and keep people blind from believing in Jesus. And in one of those letters, he writes the following to his nephew, Wormwood. My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I like to call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christi Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psych psychical research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. This was written in the 50s. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Work on their horror of the same old thing. In other words, get them tired of the gospel itself. Get them tired of Jesus himself and get them to add something else to their Christianity. Well, the false teachers have listened to Screwtape. They've listened and they've written to Wormwood to deceive the church at Colossae and to, they hope, deceive the church in Owensboro, deceive Heritage Baptist Church and get us to involve ourselves in Christianity and. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, where Paul writes a very strong word to the church and says to them, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, or as the ESV translates it, philosophy and empty deceit, and we unpacked the risk that was involved with that and also, also Paul's rescue mission, which was to remind them of what Screwtape calls the same old thing, which is Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. However, Paul is going to come back and in this passage unpack some of the content of that empty, deceitful philosophy, some of those plausible arguments that were being made, and if you think about it, this is the real danger in false teaching. It's not the stuff that walks around and is obviously an error. It's the subtlety of what can lead us astray from Christ alone. 
and get us to erect other things in addition to Christ as necessary for salvation. Get us to erect Christianity and something else. That's why Paul says in verse 8, see to it, or sorry, verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, plausibility is a big issue. It sounds right. They make biblical arguments. It seems like it's true. Sounds true. Has a ring of truth to it. But if you drill down deeper, it leads you away from Christ alone. This is why Paul says in verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. There are teachings that have an appearance of wisdom. They have a a way of masquerading themselves as wise and plausible, and it's those teachings, those teachings, which are the most dangerous. And it's those teachings we need to be most aware of, the ones with high plausibility and an appearance of wisdom. And Paul's going to talk about three of them in verses 16 through 23, and those are the three I want us to talk about this morning. The false teachers claimed that they were able to attain some higher form of spirituality than the Colossians had received and that we've received by following a rigorously ascetic approach to life that include creating a long list of prescribed activities from which one must be careful to abstain. Don't do these things or do these things. And if a person proved faithful in following these practices, then they would attain this new level of spirituality and be granted access to things ordinary believers don't experience. Paul's response is we should not let such people judge us as inferior or disqualify us from fellowship with God simply because we don't follow their man-made instructions. So what are the three counterfeit gospels that Paul is going to address here in this passage? Here's the first one, legalism. Legalism. Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul's point here is believers should not be judged by each other or by a false teacher, should not allow themselves to be judged concerning dietary customs and calendar practices that are dictated by human tradition. The heart of legalism is here. By legalism, we'll define in just a minute, but the heart of legalism is seen in passing judgments on others who do not conform to extra-biblical lists of religious practices. That's at the heart of legalism. It's adding to the gospel something that is necessary for biblical obedience. God didn't go far enough. We're here to help him out. That's the heart of legalism. God didn't go far enough, so we're here to help him out. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about legalism. Legalists see the law of God as so important that they add to the law. In order to assist, they try to legislate where God has left men free. 
They tend to create rules and regulations, such as forbidding Christians to dance or go to movies. Where God has not legislated, legalists put others in chains and inevitably substitute man-made laws for the real law of God. Can I give you a few humorous examples of this? I want to introduce you to my friend, Lloyd Legalist. Here he is. It is a fictitious, satirical Twitter account. Lloyd is a pastor who's contentiously contending for the faith in the buckle of the Bible belt. He's angry about everything, including about all the things that Christians do that he doesn't like. And he's willing to preach about it because he knows preaching involves meddling. Here's what Lloyd says in one of his tweets. If you're struggling under a heavy load, remember, even though I'm not with you in person, consider me right there passing judgment on you. That's what Lloyd likes to do. Notice angry youth pastor. I cut that off, but there was a response from angry youth pastor. There's all these fake Twitter accounts that exist out there that provide the needed levity for pastors and Christians. So Lloyd Legalist says that he's there and he's joining the false teachers in Colossae and passing judgment on Christians. Another satirical site, the Babylon Bee. Perhaps you all enjoy the Babylon Bee. It's a satirical Christian site that's designed to poke fun at us as Christians and the things we make a big deal out of. Here's an article, Legalist Named Daughter Grace. And here's where, here's what the article says. It was written July 3rd, 2017 in Marlboro, Massachusetts, which is funny if you think about it. According to sources close to Blake and Jenna Ryder, the couple known for being insufferably legalistic to everyone close to them have ironically chosen to name their newborn daughter Grace. The Ryders, who judge anyone that doesn't live up to their own personal convictions and moral standards, picked the name so that other couples would know how spiritual they are, sources confirmed. Quote, a good biblical name like Grace alerts everyone to our very high standard of righteousness, Blake Ryder told reporters outside the delivery room. We consider going with something like charity or constance, but grace is really the ultimate name if you want people to stand in awe of your godliness as a parent, end quote. When offered a cigar to celebrate the birth of his daughter, the man condemned the practice as a damnable sin, far beneath someone as righteous as he, before sneering at several other new parents at the hospital who hadn't named their kids after someone or something in the Bible, end quote. And that my friends, is the heart of legalism. Adding man-made extra-biblical lists of requirements that you require other Christians to follow. And that's what these false teachers were doing. These false teachers in Colossae were criticizing those who did not adopt certain practices pertaining to two basic sets of issues. Diet and days. And this stuff has riddled church history for 2,000 years. Christians continue to argue about diet and days. Now, Paul says that here in verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards in questions of food and drink, there's diet, and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, there's days. So the diet refers to, most likely, the Old Testament food laws that were practiced by the Jewish people that Christ clearly rescinded in Mark 7 and Acts 10. 
that he, when all foods in the new covenant, as the, as the king has come, are declared clean. And what's going on here is probably these teachers are coming back and said, yeah, but if you want to be Christian, you got to be a little bit Jewish. you got to be Jewish. I mean, that's why God wrote all those. He cares about stuff like that, doesn't he? It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. So shouldn't we try to conform our eating practices to the Old Testament? Shouldn't we declare some foods unclean? Shouldn't we declare some foods better than other foods in terms of our relationship with God? Not talking about nutrition here, just talking about relationship with God. Okay? So diet was a big issue, but the second one is days. And this obviously references Jewish holidays of three types. Annual festivals like Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, First Fruits, Monthly Feasts, and Sabbath days. Now, that is not to say that the Lord's Day gathering uh, that we're doing right now isn't special. And it's not to say that it's not the day on which the early church gathered to celebrate the resurrection in Acts 20, verse 7, or 1 Corinthians 16, 2. But the problem was that the Colossians had not recognized Christ's true sufficiency when it came to diets and days of the Old Covenant. This is what Paul says in, second, or in, in verse 17. Look there, here's his argument for why they shouldn't let anyone pass judgment on them. These are a shadow. These diets and these days are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the substance, the main thing, the thing to which these shadows point is Christ. So Paul's point is that the old covenant laws concerning dietary practices and holy days are fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. The food laws and the Jewish calendar have no value for they were mere shadows of the reality that we now have in Christ. Let me say that again. The food laws and the Jewish calendar have no value for they were mere shadows of the reality that we now have in Christ. So Paul's argument is, why settle for shadows when you have a solid reality to which the shadows point? Why settle for ceremonies when you already have Christ himself? Paul doesn't want these teachers to let anyone think they are sub-Christian because they choose not to celebrate these festivals or observe these regulations associated during the time of the Old Testament. Hebrews 10.1 reminds us, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves. The reality is here, and his name is Jesus. Now, if you remember, Paul engaged in dietary and calendar issues in another part of the Bible, because this has always been a question and issue that the Christian church has had to deal with, and that's why Romans 14 is written. Paul addresses their differences between Christians and how they are to conduct themselves in the house of God, in the church, when they don't see eye to eye on these things. And he doesn't advocate division. He advocates loving disagreement. Some believers were weak in the faith, Romans 14.1, and had scruples about eating meat and drinking wine and certain calendar things associated with the Old Covenant. And they felt like they needed to follow that in order for their conscience to be clear before God. 
while others had no problem with eating meat or drinking wine or not observing particular calendar issues in the Old Covenant. The observance of holy days was in dispute, according to Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. And in this situation, Paul's basic advice was not to pass judgment on one another, but let love trump liberty. The strong in faith should seek to serve the needs of the weak in faith and not cause them to stumble. But see why Paul, So why is Paul saying in Romans 14, don't pass judgment on one another? But in Romans, or Colossians 2 here, he says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. He's talking to two totally different audiences. In Romans 14, he's talking to believers who are passing judgment on one another and saying, don't do that. And in this case, he's saying false teachers who claim to be Christians but are probably not, are advocating this. Don't let them convince you that they're right. That's why he's stronger, because he's calling into question the salvation of these Colossian Christians. And anytime the gospel is at stake, that's where Paul draws the line. And that's where we should draw the line and draw no other lines. Where the gospel's at stake. In Romans 14, the disputes were taking place in the Christian church between members with various levels of understanding. But in Colossae, the believers were being threatened by a system of teaching that demanded, demanded abstention from certain foods and observing the Jewish calendar according to its festivals and feasts laid out there. And Paul would not tolerate that because it was a condition for salvation itself. It was a full frontal attack on the sufficiency of Christ. And we shouldn't tolerate stuff like that either. So, what's the key takeaway here for us in regards to legalism? Any legalism existing in this room? Any legalism existing in this pastor's heart? You betcha. You betcha. We all got this issue. Whether it's, I'm not saying these are, these are just some examples, modern day examples. Maybe you're not hung up over diet and days, but maybe you are hung up over Bible translations. What's the right one? What's the right one? What's the one the Apostle Paul used? King James, right? What about education? Home, private, or public? (laughs) Don't pass judgment. What about a political party? Ooh. (laughs) Cutting close to the chest a little bit, aren't we? What about entertainment choices? Here's the key takeaway. God's laws are for everyone. Your laws are for you. God's laws are for everyone. Your laws are for you. Now you say, but I'm pretty convinced that my laws are God's laws about everything, then you're proud. And you're not right. No one's right about everything. So what we have to be careful of is make sure, make sure, make sure, brothers and sisters, that your preferences don't become your prejudices. 
distinguish in your mind between principles and methods. Between the thing itself and the way the thing is done. We have to distinguish that. People can be faithful to the principle and execute it differently. You say, well, unless a guy is going verse by verse through the Bible, that ain't preaching. Which I've been told before, which is wrong. And that's a man-made idea that's imported as biblical faithfulness. Legalism! God never bound His church to that. Now, do I think that's a generally wise practice? Sure. But we can't introduce methods as though that were the principle. It's not the principle. The principle is preach the Word. It's got to be the Word. If it isn't the Word, don't listen to it. But it can be done differently. I mean, pews or seats. Gym or worship center or big sanctuary what time do we gather i mean all those are flexible right those are circumstances we can disagree about stuff like that but we can't divide over stuff like that so that's legalism and we're all susceptible to it and we all have to keep a close watch on our hearts and the way we keep a close watch on our hearts and defeat legalism is to keep the main thing the main thing keep jesus full stop full front in your mind at all times, at all times. If, if he is the sun in the center of your solar system, all these other issues will balance out and be in their proper orbits. But when you displace him from the center and something else becomes the center, havoc comes. And all kinds of consequences are fa- fall out from a result of that. So that's why Paul spends so much time in this first two chapters talking about Jesus. Because he wants us to be satisfied and complete in him. Second false gospel, besides legalism, is mysticism. Mysticism. Look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, what he's saying here in this second false gospel of mysticism is that believers should not be disqualified by those who insist upon various types of spiritual experiences. Mysticism is seeking to get closer to God through experience, through spiritual experience. Paul is concerned about people insisting on a regimen of mystical, spiritual experiences. He says here, talking about worship of angels and going in details about visions and all that. In other words, these false teachers came in and they were the varsity Christian squad. And they're going to address the church in Colossae, which is junior varsity. And they're trying to bring them up into a higher spiritual plane. They're like, listen, we worship angelically. 
and we have visions and we've seen things that you have no idea about. I mean, we got access to the holy of holies. You want some of that? Because you need it if you're going to be saved. Speak in tongues. Tithe this amount of money. Give, sow this seed, and you'll have a higher blessing. Fast this long. Go on a really, really sacrificial mission trip for like three years. Street witness. That's where you'll really meet God. Are these bad things, brothers and sisters? Is fasting a bad thing? Street witnessing a bad thing? Absolutely not. May God give us all hearts to do such things. But they're not categories for Christianity and faithfulness. Witnessing is not necessarily street witnessing. It's not the only way you have to do it. Here's other things. Get a vision from God. Hear from God. Get healed. Heal somebody else. Engage in this kind of worship music. Figure out who your guardian angel is. Have you, a, lot of, a lot of false teaching has a real obsession with angels. Read the I Went to Heaven books and learn about the kid that went right there and got that great vision and came back and lived to tell about it. Those are the great books to read. Get the prayer of Jabez and pray that every day like a little mantra and your life will be blessed. I mean, we grab hold of this like crazy. Whatever's new, whatever's going to get us closer to God, I mean, forget the old paths of prayer and Bible reading and church attendance. That's bunk. We need new. We're Americans. Come on, pack a stadium. Put a preacher in the middle of it. Watch everybody fall down. There's God. No, there isn't God. It's not God. What sort of spiritual object or icon or prayer cloth can I hold on to? That's, that's, the, that's the key. I didn't grow up in the church, but my earliest exposure was to spiritual experience youth group. And I'm not alone in this. Mike Cosper shared about this as well, and I want to read you something about his early mystical days and how it affected him. Mike, by the way, is going to be in Owensboro tomorrow night. This is his new book called Recapturing the Wonder. It's about spiritual disciplines. It's good. It's helpful. I encourage you all to come hear him. He was the, one of the founding pastors of Sojourn Community in Louisville. And uh, he's about my age, maybe a little older. Um, but uh, he's going to be preaching at Man Up Monday tomorrow night about work. So, guys, please come out to that. You're, I think we have Titus Talks for the women and uh, something for the men. So, one of them can take the kids, or if you don't have any kids, you both can go different places. But take advantage of that. Come here, Mike. That's just a little plug for him. But here's what he says about that whole mystical experience in evangelicalism. He says, I grew up in evangelical churches and was raised on a steady diet of spectacle and hype. Hype extended far beyond the youth group games and into our spiritual experiences. At youth groups, camps, and retreats, most of the speakers were young men in their 20s and 30s who in hindsight all reminded me of Dane Cook. I remember one conference that ended with a clip from the movie Glory. It was a scene before the last battle in the film where Matthew Broderick asks, who will carry the flag if the standard bearer falls during a charge into battle? 
And this was used as a metaphor. The flag of our faith has fallen, he said. Who will stand to carry it into the next generation? There was a pregnant pause, and then in the back of the room, a brave soul yelled, I will! And soon the whole auditorium rumbled with shuffling feet and the folding of heavy theater seats as kids all over the room stood and shouted, I will. It was moving. I think I teared up. The next year at this same conference, this gag was repeated, only instead of glory, the video clip was, Oh, Captain, my Captain, from Dead Poet Society. My friend Lachlan leaned over and said, He's going to make us all stand up. Sure enough, after some setup, there was a pregnant pause, and oh, Captain, my captain, shuffling my feet, everyone who hadn't attended the year before was deeply moved. And the next year, it repeated again. Here's what Cosper says about that. Between these moments were countless others spent huddled in small groups, friends' homes, or cars, where we talked more plainly and quietly about our faith. These moments weren't without depth or sincerity, but they were peripheral. They were in the margins. They came without much guidance or instruction. Rarely did someone sit down to talk to us about the daily mundane aspects of faith. It didn't fit the logic of everything else they told us about faith. Being a Christian is too awesome to be ordinary. So I was trained to live from one pyrotechnic moment to the next, one hyped-up emotional mountain to another. There's a thread that connects all of this to emotionally manipulative church gatherings and to every other hype and spectacle phenomenon in the church today, all are rooted in deep cynicism. They reveal a loss of confidence in the practices that have formed and united the church for generations before. Practices rooted in the word, prayer, and song, habits that celebrate the covenantal shared life of a faith community. If we have no confidence that God is going to show up in the habits that he has given us, then we have one mandate, make something happen. I don't think my experience is atypical. For many who grew up in North American evangelicalism, what I just described should sound fairly normal. What was regular about church, regular in the sense of repeated regularity, was the way it strove for the heights. A good worship experience involved emotional catharsis, ending with tears and bold commitments. Ordinariness as a whole was shunned in favor of being radical, extreme, and so forth. There's a common thread between these experiences. All of our religious efforts grow from hearts that long for redemption, for transcendence, and that most of all is to connect with God. So we look for him in enchanted objects like plastic crosses or feathers from heaven, or we look for him to meet us in the climactic moments of a worship service. More than anything, we're looking for some kind of assurance that God is still there, that he'll still show up for us in life and death. To find that assurance, we have to separate what we've become habituated to expect mountaintop experiences of varying kinds, and what he promises, the quiet comfort of his real presence. The scriptures, in the scriptures, we see that he comes not in a storm, but in a still small voice, not in a conquering hero, at least not yet, but a carpenter, not in a victorious tribe, but in an impoverished and persecuted church. The real wonder is that this is what we really want. The mountaintop experiences don't satisfy But the presence of Jesus does, and he's promised that he won't forsake us. He's as present as when we're mowing the lawn or arguing with our boss as he is as an altar call or in quiet moments of prayer. It's mysterious and hidden, yet it's a core promise of the New Testament. God is with us. So what's Cosper advocating? That there's not value in calling for a radical commitment to Christ from kids? No. Is it saying that all that he experienced growing up 
was wrong? No. He's just saying that when you try to import mysticism and spiritual experience and try to create it and manufacture it, it's wrong. It's not the way Jesus usually works. He usually works in soft, quiet ways over a long period of time. Not always, but often. So mysticism is another thing, another false gospel that we have to be aware of. Whereas some people seek to grow through extreme bodily self-denial, the invocation of angelic beings and visionary experiences, genuine spiritual growth occurs how, according to verse 19? Holding fast to the head. Staying close to Jesus. That's how you grow spiritually. You hold fast to Him personally. Individually, collectively, it is possible to be engaged in numerous spiritual experiences of a profound supernatural orientation and yet be utterly controlled by the sinful nature in the midst of it and after it. And it leaves you unchanged. How many people saw Jesus do miracles and didn't believe? They walked away. That's why he says, That's why Jesus said, they have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They're not going to believe if somebody rises from the dead. The Word of God is what gives life. Not spiritual experiences devoid of the Word of God. That's devilish. It's demonic. It can produce all kinds of spiritual catastrophe. The Word of God, what we have, what you can read, what you can test, what you can see, is what matters. And holding fast to Jesus as he's revealed in the word of God. The fundamental problem is that these people are seeking their spiritual strength and guidance from something other than Christ himself. Make note, people who attend conferences and read the latest books and are browsing the latest blogs and trying to get after it spiritually may not be pursuing Jesus. They're probably chasing experience because as soon as the experiences start to go away, they stop walking with Jesus anymore. I just need to go back and get my tank filled up. I just need to go catch that high again. Listen, if you've got to go catch a high, you didn't catch it from Jesus. You did not catch it from Jesus. And kids, young people, teenagers, don't be fooled by this. Don't be fooled by this. Realize that you walking with Jesus personally through the word and prayer is what matters the most. You reading the scriptures, praying, and obeying in the power of his spirit is what matters the most. And Jesus will lead you. (laughs) He will lead your life, and you will know fellowship with him and not have to be sucked in by the false gospels that the world offers us, even unintentionally and seemingly harmlessly in the church. Here's the third and final false gospel, and that is asceticism. Asceticism. We've already seen that word in verse 18. Paul says it, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. But in verse 20 through 23, he really unpacks what he means by that. And he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, he says, believers should not submit to ascetic practices, flesh-denying practices, pleasure-denying practices that are not dictated by God, but they're dictated by human tradition. Not all asceticism is bad. Let me say this up front. And in the American church, we could probably use a little bit more of it. All right? Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9 that he buffeted his body and he made it his slave so that he would not be disqualified. That is, he disciplined himself to fight sin. That's good. That's good. Look at Colossians 3. We'll get to this in a couple of months. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of such things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and put on the new self. Verse 12, put on God as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. There's a life's work there of stuff we're supposed to do. And that requires godly, biblical asceticism. we got to kill some stuff in our lives. But, that's not what Paul's talking about here. (laughs) All right, So I don't want you to hear me say that a call to asceticism, it's a call to sinfulness. Like, don't care, just indulge pleasure. Just give yourself over to it. No, that's not what he's talking about here. There's good kinds of fasting, We've been calling our church to some of it. Okay, so not all asceticism is bad. There's a godly asceticism, but there's also a sinful and ungodly asceticism. Ungodly asceticism is where people willingly embrace lowliness and suffering to enhance the appearance of godliness. It's the belief that if you add up enough physical negatives, you'll reap a spiritual positive. Mere avoidance, then, becomes the pathway to holiness. Look at that holy man. He's involved in nothing. By Paul saying, don't submit to regulations, he's not saying, just get rid of all ethical commands and you do what you want to do. No, that's the American gospel. That's not the biblical gospel. The American gospel takes people to hell. The biblical gospel takes people to heaven. But he is saying, jettison all worldly regulations that are opposed to the gospel. These people were convinced that abstinence was inherently more pleasing to God than participation. And like many today, they believe that self-denial was intrinsically more spiritual or an indication of greater fervency for God, regardless of what the activity was. That's a key point. There is biblical self-denial. But it's not required in every single situation. Like, okay, so what would be more pleasing to God? You fast the meal or eat the meal for lunch? What's more pleasing to God? Answer, either one. If it's done in faith. With gratitude and thankfulness to God. Of course, those who overindulge in drink or eating to excess are rebuked in Scripture as gluttons and drunkards. 
But that's not because partaking in itself is inherently less godly than abstinence would be. Here's a helpful book on the subject, The Things of Earth by Joe Rigney. If you tend toward an ascetic life, which is kind of rare in America, we're pretty, we're pretty go for the gusto, you know, milk the marrow out of life, get everything you can, but they're, they're, I struggle with this from time to time, and I definitely struggle with it as a young Christian. Here's what Joe says commenting on this passage. He says, given the persistence of the threat of true worship of God, one way to address idolatry is to seek to thin out creation, to hold it loosely like it was a hot potato, and to be wary of its delights and pleasures. This suspicion of creation can grow into an outright rejection of creation, which is an outright of something that, which is to, to call evil something that God has called good. That's sin, by the way. To pursue holiness by stiff-arming created pleasures appears wise. Ascetic religion and severity to the body may impress lots of people, but their value in promoting godliness is null. The reason should not be obvious, should be obvious. Sin is not in the stuff. Sin resides in the human heart, and thinning out creation just makes us thin idolaters. We exchange indulgent sins for ascetic sins. But, re- but rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic doesn't alter the ship's path. The flesh is still steering the boat, and a true course correction will require something more fundamental than a rejection of God's good gifts. He concludes, The demonic scheme that Paul describes in this passage is as old as dirt. Demons love to depict God as miserly. In the last chapter, we saw that God had endorsed Adam and Eve's enjoyment of every tree in the garden except one. One no in a world full of yes. But when Satan approached Eve, he turned this reality on its head. Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, one no on Satan's lips becomes a universal rejection. In the serpent's mouth, God is not a father, he's a forbidder. He's a cosmic killjoy who creates pleasures and then denies their indulgence. He made you with taste buds. He made you with a sex drive within marriage to be executed. (laughs) What a terrible word. Right? He made you with pleasure capacity. And he's going to deny you the exercise of it? What kind of God is that? The mark of the serpent's lying theology is this denial and asceticism. And Paul teaches that we haven't seen the last of such deceitful doctrine. This is why he encourages us to put such warnings and endorsements before the people. Christians need to be reminded of the goodness of creation and God's approval of it for our joy. Otherwise, we believe the devil's lies and succumb to low-grade guilt every time we encounter the things of earth. This shows up in one particular way. It, it shows up in a couple of different ways. I mean, we, we, we rightly and justly condemn the prosperity gospel as no gospel. It's not a gospel. The gospel that comes along says Jesus exists to make you healthy and wealthy and all that and th- th- to heal all your diseases. And if you don't get them healed, it's because you don't have enough faith and all that stuff. I mean, we rightly condemn that as error and heresy. But do we equally condemn poverty theology? What do I mean? 
Prosperity theology is that you get closer to God the more stuff you have. Poverty theology is that you get closer to God the less stuff you have. And both are wrong. Sin's not in the stuff. It's in the heart. Poverty theology says that if you really love God, you're going to not sleep in a comfortable bed. You're going to not live in a decent home. You're not going to drive a dependable car. That's worldly. Don't you know that money can go for missions? I'm not beating. We should give to missions. Hear me. Hear me. Mature your soul then through hardship and suffering because that's the only way God matures us. It's thinking that that's the only way that God matures us, and that's not true. God matures us through everything. This is why 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul, or 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. I can be contentment when I'm in abundance and when I'm abounding and when I'm brought low. He doesn't condemn abundance as sin. He condemns it as sin if you're, not, if you're only content there. If that's the only place you can find contentment is if I've got it all, if I'm rolling and I got it all together. But if I'm struggling at all in any way, I'm not content. Well, that's wrong. The key is finding contentment in Christ, staying, holding fast to the head. And the point is, is that the more we distract people from saying, no, you got to do this and this, and God doesn't like this and that and that and that, all these extra biblical things, it keeps us away from Jesus, who is the one who really grows us up and matures us. Having or not having is not the ultimate issue. Contentment in God in everything whether he prospers you or not, is the issue. Job had both. Job was profoundly wealthy and profoundly afflicted. And after he learned his lesson, God said, good, because that's what I was trying to teach you the whole time. I'm not going to double anything you get back, because that was the problem to begin with. Satan takes it all away. God sanctifies it to Job and then gives him his stuff back. What does that tell us? The problem was the stuff. See, he was a wealthy person. He needed to be rebuked. No, he said he was blameless. He was blameless. Didn't have any problem with it. Didn't even really want the stuff back. But God gave it back to him. So it seems to me that God didn't seem to think that his suffering meant that he needed to, be, to remove his wealth from him. Since after he went through everything, God restored it exponentially. Abraham prospered with land and cattle. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who used his influence to secure a burial site for Jesus. Praise God he did. So my point is, is that asceticism, insisting upon a certain regulation of lifestyle as the ultimate test for whether one is in the kingdom or not, is a false gospel. Brothers, here's my conclusion. Sisters, here's my conclusion. Worship team, you can come on up. And this is what I'm praying for and what I'm pleading for. We need a stubborn Christocentrism in the church. Be stubborn about the true gospel and not stubborn about anything else. Refuse to cling to anything other than Jesus and him alone. The subtle and devilish ways that screw tape and wormwood get in our heads and add Christianity and will always threaten us. There will always be competition to Christ alone by saying that we need something more than him. 
rules, visions, experiences, seminars, principles. Don't let anyone impose upon you a program for spiritual development that does not have Christ at its center and Christ as its head. John Calvin says this, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. And with this I close. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. Christ is sufficient. A thousand schemes and to-do lists may threaten to enslave you, but Christ died to free you from them, and He is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word, which gives us and trains us 